Welcome back to Plenary Session Podcast. We have a great show in store for you today. I'm talking with Nina Sanford and Bill Hall about their new paper in the JCO. It's in Comments and Controversies. It's entitled, Elucidating the Benefit of Radiation Therapy in GI Cancers, Rethinking Trial Endpoints and Patient Selection. Nina, Bill, it's great to see you. Nina, this is the first time on the show. Is that right? Excited to be here. And for Bill, you're a seasoned pro. Bill, how many times have you been on? I am thrilled to be back. Number three. When you do it five times, we mail right. you the jacket. I'm looking You'll forward get the to the green it. jacket in the mail. Yeah. Nina, tell us about this paper. So I read this paper. It's very interesting. We're talking about GI radiotherapy. We're talking about the endpoints we need. And it was all based on this idea that in a bunch of recent clinical studies, overall survival didn't deliver as the endpoint. Why don't you talk about that? What was the what was the motivating force behind you guys thinking yeah, about so, this? Yeah. Um, so first of all, thank you again for having me. Excited to be here. Um, So we actually didn't intend to make this into a paper. Um, So Bill and I are working on a trial together um, in pancreas cancer. Actually, I think it was the one we talked about like a long time ago, it's still in the works. Um, And I was getting ready to present it to the pancreas task force in July. Um, And to do my due diligence for that presentation, I asked the steering committee for a list of trials that they had approved. Um, since that steering committee was formed in 2006, just to see like what trials they were proving, what are the endpoints, just to like, um, you know, understand what I was about to do. So I got the Excel spreadsheet and then I just started going through the trials. Were they radiation? Were they uh, systemic therapy? Were they surgery? And that's where I started to know, to notice these trends and, and these differences. Um, so the major thing that we talked about was the differences in endpoints between uh, radiation and systemic trials. So first of all, there are 65 trials total, 49 were systemic therapy, 12 were radiation. This would be like a separate topic that like oh, there are a lot more trials of systemic therapy than radiation. Like, you know, should that be the case in the cooperative level? But we didn't delve into that. But of those trials um, for the radiation trials, except for two, all had an OS endpoint. And the only two that didn't have an OS endpoints were actually trials of radiation deintensification, so of omission or deescalation. These are the decrease in prostate trials in anal and rectal cancers. But every trial that was intending to show that radiation uh, as a modality was needed in a certain disease setting or a specific type of radiation was superior had an OS endpoint. Um, in contrast, for systemic therapy trials, the majority had a um, a composite surrogate surrogate endpoint like PFS, only about a third had OS. So that was like the first major finding. And then the second one was just the inclusion criteria. Radiation trials tend to include all comers at diagnosis, like very broad inclusion criteria, very non-selective, whereas systemic therapy trials tend to be much more tailored to patient subsets. And of the 12 radiation trials, only one is positive. Um, that was RTOG 1112 in, um, in HCC, and the rest were negative or uh, didn't finish accruing or are, are still in the works. Um, so the, but the point of the paper wasn't to like whine, it wasn't to like call out a double standard, but really with all these negative trials, like how can we go forward and how can we, you know, show where and how radiation is beneficial? That's the background. I see. So your first point in a cooperative group setting, way more drug trials than radiation trials. When drug trials are run, they often use surrogate endpoints like progression-free survival. When radiation trials are run, you often use overall survival of 12 trials, a lot of negative studies, 11 negative studies. And Bill, 
take us to the next part of it. The next part of it is this unselected yes. question. Why in radiotherapy, why are you going after these uns? Why is there yeah, no is, pruning? You're always is, going after the whole, it is biting the whole app. It is a profound apple. issue in our specialty. And I think there's multiple reasons for it. Um, so taking a step back, when when pharmaceutical trials are designed, looking at a new drug or, or a new, you know, a new medical intervention, um, they often have the backing and the robust support of a, of a pharmaceutical company, which which is really, really important to note. There is a vest, a truly vested partner in the success of that clinical trial. And there are people that are helping tremendously on laboratory correlates and selection factors and selection criteria and endpoint design to enrich the possibility of the success of that clinical trial. That is not as often the case in radiotherapy trials. When when you know radiation doesn't have a necessary mandate on the industrial side for a clinical trial to prove effectiveness to use it, right? So when a when Electa or Varian or Siemens or whoever produces a new proton therapy machine or MR guided linear accelerator or some fancy way of giving radiation, they don't need a prospective trial to prove it's effective. So <clears throat> we haven't been as focused on selection criteria, I think partly because of that and partly because we struggle tremendously for funding. And if you don't have preclinical and translational funding, lots of funding to identify robustly validated biomarkers, to, to identify subgroups that benefit particularly from different types of intervention, it's nearly impossible to bring those into prospective clinical trials because that's the very last point of a biomarker identified intervention is the clinical trial, right? Before that, there's all sorts of preclinical work and retrospective specimen work. And, and we as a specialty suffer profoundly from, from low funding from the NCI, as well as low funding from industry in comparison to medical oncology. So we have candidates. I mean, there's there are whole hosts of papers on genomically guided radiation and, and um, combination genomic scores that can predict radiosensitivity and but we're we're simply not using them and it's it's for a number of reasons but i think primarily if funding is at the core of that they're just too expensive and we don't have validated studies that are bringing them into clinical trials just to add to that so that's really funding, interesting yeah add accrual to that. is very very challenging in radiation studies i know this is something that bill is very familiar with and um a lot of the radiation trials don't accrue particularly radiation versus no radiation so it's always a balance between, you know, what is your perfect study and what is pragmatic. Otherwise, you know, by the time a study is a finished accruing, if it even does, it's going to be totally outdated, um, which we have seen in some of these radiation studies. Okay, so you guys are kind of painting a very interesting picture. On the one hand, I would say that the fact that in radiation oncology, you all have been trying to improve overall survival I think that's a laudatory goal. You're not settling for a surrogate endpoint. You're trying to go for what really matters. On the other hand, I, and I, also in this hand of another laudatory thing, is that you're all trying to pursue the truth. Whereas the pharmaceutical industry, of course, they want to know the true result. They also kind of stack the deck in favor of their studies. And you all don't do that as much. You're running more honest studies, in my opinion. But on the downside, to Bill's point, it is low funding because there's nobody going to make a ton of money from a positive study. To Nina's point, it's difficult to accrue. Some things accrue so slowly over so many decades. Standard of care has changed four times in the middle, so it's hard to know what to do with that data. Okay, so the bottom line is from these two trends, we see a lot of null results in GI oncology, 
And you're all coming in in this paper, this JCO Comments and Controversy, which is a nice paper, actually, well played. To get a Comments Controversy, I give you, I give you props for that. That's a good article. Um, you're coming in with several solutions, all right? Some of the solutions are about endpoints. Some of the solutions are about population. Maybe why don't we start with Nina and you talk about what are some of the other endpoints that you think would be interesting to look at and how might we pursue that in a radiation oncology trials agenda? Yeah, so as we talked about, most radiation studies are overall survival. Um, there really aren't that many studies showing that radiation improves overall survival in the neoadjuvant or adjuvant setting, which is typically when it's given in GI cancers, not always. Um, and the trials that did show that are, are very outdated. People don't even trust them anymore. There's one in gastric cancer, a very old one in pancreas cancer. There are many issues with studies. Um, but I think there are other ways that we think radiation can be helpful, and that's where we really talked about quality of life um, and how radiation could potentially improve that. But the issue with quality of life is that it is like so poorly captured in studies. I mean, um, you know, oftentimes, and I've been, you know, looking at endpoints of trials um, across disease sites, it's kind of just thrown in there as a secondary endpoint. Um, it's not reported. And then when, um, when you have patients report that, it's like they're very censored patients. The patients who are really sick probably aren't even turning the survey. So it's like super biased. Right. Um, I think part of that is because the instruments are burdensome and they are um, they're too all encompassing. So what we talked about is that we should um, incorporate sort of more tailored quality of life instruments. We talked about financial toxicity. We talked about time toxicity. I think these are things that radiation could show itself to be beneficial in, um, you know, time off systemic therapy, things like that. So we talked about that as ways to potentially show the value of radiation. But I'd like to know from you, like, in you know, you've thought a lot about obviously endpoints and quality of life. Do you think that, you know, there is a future for that as a primary endpoint in in these trials? Because it really hasn't been done very much. Yeah, that was, I mean, that's the part of the manuscript that spoke to me a lot. Um, as you know, and I know because you cite one of our one of our papers. Um, we're, I'm really interested in the ways in which we don't actually capture quality of life. One of the ways is that we measure it while people are on protocol. We don't measure it after protocol in many trials. So like there's so much of life that we're just not even capturing totally it. The second is the thing you talk about. Radiation. If yeah. you're not testing when of course. they need salvage therapy, then obviously everyone who gets radiation initially is going to have worse quality of life. You're right. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's a really important point, which is that some of the benefits of radiotherapy may not be realized until eight months, 10 months, 12 months, 18 months, two years later. And that's when you're avoiding some therapy down the road and that's gonna see the gain, but we don't even capture that. The second thing is the point you're making, which is very astute, which is that not everyone fills out the form. So we need a system of quality of life where we actually measure it in everybody. We don't just get the people who feel good enough to fill out the forms, which can bias it in any direction, depending on compliance rates. Having said that, your question is, can quality of life be the basis of radiotherapy? And the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, I think we all agree, particularly in anal cancer, that sphincter preservation is a good endpoint in and of itself. And sometimes if two things have equal overall survival, but more sphincter preservation, we use that as a surrogate for better quality of life, which those of us who practice will know that yes, it is because sphincter preservation is important to people. Larynx preservation is important to people with head and neck cancer. I would much rather get radiotherapy and platinum than my larynx removed, obviously, right? So that's the basis of that. So quality of life is an important endpoint, I think, in radiotherapy studies. And it can be. So I thought this is a brilliant part of your paper, which is that if we measured it well, 
it could be the basis for the use of radiotherapy. Bill, you want to add something to this? It's so refreshing to hear you say that because I think we keep going forward with this real purist mentality and it's clearly not working. I mean, even the study that, you know, Nina and I are, are sort of designing right now, where it's still a very purist trial and it, it really focuses on overall survival. The challenge is resetting that mindset and it's it's very, very, very hard. I mean, as in the, in the biggest challenge that we face as a specialty is that we are beholden to largely to NCI funding. I mean, if you want to run a phase three trial testing radiotherapy, it's basically the NCI, you know, um, in the United States. And so that change is is really, really, really hard for us to accomplish. Even though it sounds great, it's just it, the path forward is very difficult. And let me make one more argument in your favor, which is that the oncologists, medical oncologists, they're using progression-free survival which is neither overall survival, nor yep. is it quality of life. It's just endpoint that's radiographic that may or may not have anything to do with what people care about. What you're talking about using quality of life, it is a hard endpoint. I mean, the two things people care about, living longer, living better. And if you survey patients, they usually care about living better, even more than living longer in a number of studies. So I think that that is a really important point. It's not a surrogate, it's the real thing. Um, and you're right, there is this sort of inertia uh, to be a purist and pursue OS. But as you point out, where has that gotten you in radiation therapy? You have 11 out of 12 negative studies. Where has that gotten us? It's time to think outside the box. So I like that. Let's talk about the second thing in the last 10 minutes. The second thing is, this is intrigues me too, patient selection. Um, you know, in oncology, sometimes we pursue things in subgroups, HER2 only, you know, HER2 positive, um, like the TOGA trial, for instance, in gastric cancer. Um, so we are able to use a subgroup to say, is there survival benefit in the people I think most likely to benefit? You all have been pursuing it in all comers. You alluded to some of those techniques to find who you think are going to be amenable to radiotherapy, but who, what are, what are the subgroups? What are the ways to risk stratify for radiotherapy? Yeah, I mean, that's, Bill? that's a great question. It's a question of really, where do you think the validated metrics are in order to truly risk stratify? And that is evolving. So there's, there's a lot of data looking at genomic scores, um, to try to identify patients that are more or less sensitive to radiation, but there's a lot of limitations to them and many people don't believe them. Um, there are also genomic scores that have looked at normal tissue radiotoxicity uh, potential. So Sarah Kearns has published a lot on uh, various types of germline genomic profiles that are associated with higher or lower rates of, of normal organ toxicity from radiation. So you could easily envision a trial where you selected a cohort of patients that had a germline predisposition toward radiotherapy toxicity resistance and had a tumor predisposition to radiotherapy sensitivity. And you took a tumor like pancreas cancer and you randomized them to radiation versus surgery. I mean, there's there's a lot of concepts that you could envision where you could enrich a trial population with those patients that are predisposed to be successful. You know, there are other evolving signatures of um, different types of responses to fractionation schedules, whether it's hypo, like higher doses per fraction or lower doses per fraction. Um, that are very, very interesting. And there are also sort of associations that have been drawn between established genomic scores, like uh, Decipher is a really good example, and the response or, or propensity for, um, you know, successful local control with radiation alone, omitting something like hormonal therapy. So there's a whole host of ways you could do it. Every single one of those, though, has validation limitations. And, you know, whenever we look at one individual, and I, and I do a lot of research on this, and particularly when it comes to trial design, whenever we look at one individually, we always look at it and say, you know, 
this isn't quite ready for a phase three inclusion criteria. This isn't quite ready for an integral biomarker for an NCI funded trial. We need to put this as a secondary endpoint, or we need to validate this in a cohort of banked specimens before we move forward. That's just where we are. So there isn't one that I could put forward to say, we're ready to do this today. Uh, with radiation specifically. We are doing it with systemic therapy. We're doing it, for example, in a bunch of GU trials uh, where we profile patients using, uh, you know, genomic, commercially available genomic profile by Decipher, and then we assign them to lesser or or more intense androgen deprivation therapies or anti-androgen therapies for prostate cancer. That's one example, but it's not a radiotherapy specific selection criteria. But just to wrap up on this point, the factor that I think is going to be the most promising for this is probably not a tissue or molecular-based diagnostic evaluation. It's an imaging evaluation. So I think diffusion-weighted MRI or PET-based imaging has a profound potential to select or exclude patients during a trial that are responding or not responding to radiation. And that, I think, is super promising. So you could envision a trial going forward where you adaptively dose escalate rectal cancer, rectal primary tumors, based on their intra-treatment weekly diffusion-weighted imaging response. That's, we're there with diffusion-weighted imaging in rectal cancer. We know what it means, what's validated. We've got gazillions of papers that have looked at this. We're there, we could do that. And it's largely a logistical thing to get that done. So I think imaging could probably do it, and I don't, but I don't think we're there with tissue-based biomarkers. Can I add something? So yeah, I totally agree with yes, everything please. Bill said, and he's done a lot of research in that space. I think one straightforward thing is just to not randomize for a lot of these locally advanced cancer that diagnosis. Um, like, for example, the Alliance trial in borderline resectable pancreas cancer, um, patients were randomized that diagnosis, and a lot of those patients progressed. You know, we know a third of those patients are going to progress. So, you know, that is in total contrast to studies of adjuvant chemotherapy in pancreas cancer, like you have the Pradesh study with resectable pancreas cancer and the median OS is like 54 months. That's a totally different ballpark, very selective patients versus um, trials where you randomize that diagnosis. And, and a lot of these patients are not going to be candidates for local therapy because they're going to develop distant disease. So I think we are moving away from that, I think, um, based on the trials that are, I think are forthcoming. But that has been something that has happened in the past that I think has contributed to really watering down, diluting and effective radiation. That's a really excellent point. I mean, I think randomization should occur at the moment in which the decision yeah. is salient. So right before you're able to do the radiotherapy, that's for optimal statistical power, et cetera. And as, as you know, in Polo study, they didn't randomize until you didn't progress in the first four months. They didn't randomize at diagnosis. So that's the, that's the standard practice in drugs. And then to Bill's point, if the cooperative groups are currently reluctant to um, omit people from the trial, maybe as a compromise, you build it in with as a stratification for randomization, and then you build it in with power for interaction to look to see does it work in one subgroup and not the other as sort of a secondary analysis plan as a compromise. But um, you make a really interesting point. I didn't think so much that radiothera that imaging would be the better guide to radiotherapy, but it makes sense. Of course, you're an anatomically driven field. Yeah. All right, I was closing just say the, the validations in imaging are, are profound. I mean, and, and what we have now with a, with combined MR linear accelerators is an opportunity to acquire these diffusion weight images all, almost every day, which is really, really exciting. So we can look at trajectories like we haven't before, because historically it was really a logistical limitation. I mean, you couldn't get an MRI weekly in any medical center without some sort of profound funding, but that's changing now. Same with pets. We now have 
PET integrated CT or uh, PET CT integrated linear accelerators that will also enable that. So I think that is promising, a promising future. All right, the last question for you both, and there's no wrong answer, but there's also, there also is a wrong answer. No, the last question for you both is, of all the GI malignancies, which one, which tumor type do you think there's the biggest chasm between how little we actually use radiotherapy and how much we ought to use radiotherapy, you know? Which is the one that you feel like, boy, if we really did the right studies, there really are people who could benefit here. Which is that tumor type for you? Let's do We're Nina, then the we do one. I know, but Nina, you go first. I think we might do a different one. Well, oh, I have, I feel like it's all of them, but um, I feel like I know what you're gonna say, Bill, so I may something say, say something That's different. Say I something think different. it's HCC, because, um, okay. So historically, HCC was felt to be somewhat radio-resistant, and large doses of radiation to large areas could cause this thing called radiation-induced liver disease. It was very deadly, and that kind of hindered um, progress in that field. But now with development of SBRT, we know that it can be very safe, very targeted. But the major issue with HCC is that there are so many local modalities um, between ablation, between Y90, between taste, hair, and there are like no randomized studies comparing those modalities. So it's very institution-driven, practice-dependent, and radiation doesn't make it into a lot of the guidelines because there is lack of level one evidence and based on historic issues. So I think with randomized data, which hopefully will come at some point, um, there is there, there will be more of a role for radiation ATC. What do you say, Bill? So I agree with I like totally. that HCC bill. I know what pancreas. Bill's going to say, <laughs> pancreas. Unequivocally, in my view, it's pancreas cancer. I mean, so I am very passionate about this. People that know me uh, know that I've I've written about this, talk about this. I knew I you were going to say that. So I said something yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I honestly, I was on a I was on a consensus panel a few weeks ago for, that they're running for the management of pancreas cancer, and a very very prominent medical oncologist said that he tests all pancreatic adenocarcinomas from microsatellite instability, and gives neoadjuvant um, checkpoint inhib inhibitors for those that are microsatellite unstable, and no one said anything. No one said anything. And I, and I, and I said, wow. and there was like 50 wow. people on this call, some of the most famous pancreatic cancer researchers globally. And I said, what is your data for that? And he's like, I don't have any. And no one said anything. So then when we're getting to neoadjuvant yeah. radiation, there is so much yeah. negativity about neoadjuvant radiation, despite the fact yeah. that if you look across the neoadjuvant trials, and we have a paper in JCO on this, the value of neoadjuvant radiation and the management of pancreatic adenocarcinoma. If you look across the randomized trials, the preponderance of positive randomized trials that have tested neoadjuvant therapy versus upfront surgery have used some type of concurrent chemoradiation. They haven't used SBRT, but they've used concurrent chemoradiation. So, you know, we routinely use concurrent chemoradiation um, in, in the neoadjuvant setting. I think there's a strong rationale for it. And the, there's a bizarre negativity and um, uh, animosity almost towards using it. And I just simply don't understand why. But meanwhile, you can sprinkle pembrolizumab from the sky and no one objects, no one objects. Nina Sanford is chief of GI, onco GI radiation oncology at the University of Texas Southwestern. Bill Hall is professor of radiation oncology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And their paper out now in the JCO is entitled, da -da 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 -da, elucidating the benefit of radiation therapy in GI cancers rethinking trial endpoints and patient selection it's a really interesting article it's in comments and controversies check it out thank you both for doing this thank it's a pleasure you to talk to thank you. you thanks